Hi, and welcome to the Legal LGBT Podcast. I'm Eric Lesh, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar of New York. LGBTQ people, especially LGBTQ people of color, are overrepresented in the criminal and juvenile legal systems. They experience abuse and harassment from law enforcement and violence and denial of care while in custody. Today, I'm going to talk with my guest, Richard Sines, about some of these issues and some of the ways that advocates are working to address them through legislation and litigation. Richard is a senior attorney at Lambda Legal and the criminal justice and police misconduct strategist there. Richard, how are you? How are you doing? Hi, Eric. Thank you so much for inviting me to be part of the podcast. I am a proud member of the LGBT Bar of New York, a longtime listener of the podcast, and a longer time reader of Law Notes, uh, which for me is such a vital resource for attorneys and advocates or anyone interested in cases that impact our community. So I'm so happy to be here. Wow, that's great. You know, I'm going to go ahead and cut that at a 30 second uh, ad that we'll put all over uh, <laughs> and encourage people to join and support. You're amazing. And you are a wealth of knowledge on the topic that we're going to talk about today, which is an undercovered topic uh, just in general. Um, and perhaps it's undercovered because it's so enormous in terms of the sheer content uh, that we have in potential ways that we could talk about criminal legal issues and LGBT people. Um, so I wonder, before we dive in, could you tell us a little bit about how you came to work on issues of access to justice for LGBT people in the criminal legal system? Sure. And thank, thank you for talking about it that way, because I do believe that these issues are around access to justice. And as you said, this seems to be a somewhat undercover um, section of LGBTQ law. Um, and I wanna do another plug for the great law notes because the section on prison litigation that Bill Road writes is incredibly important, not only because he does a deep dive into cases and as you know, each case represents a real person behind it, but there is a huge body of law that is often ignored when we talk about what is LGBTQ law. And that is um, issues that, fall under the criminal justice umbrella. As a Lambda legal attorney, I try to talk about the importance of Lawrence v. Texas whenever I have the opportunity to do so. So I hope anyone who's listening to the podcast, you know, if, you, if you're not familiar with Lawrence, will go back and take a good read of it because for I believe it's one of the most significant um, cases um, impacting our community. Because really what happened is the Supreme Court said that LGBTQ people cannot be criminalized because of who we are. And this was such a shift in how LGBTQ people were no longer strangers to the law and also that the stigma related to it um, has somewhat dissipated uh, over the years as, as we've seen so, so many legal advancements happen. But we know that the criminalization of our community continues, that the policing of LGBTQ people, um, adults and young people continues. And we also know that in, in talking about our community and our interaction with the criminal justice system and police, we have to consider how 
being a person of color or being trans or gender non-conforming or uh, non-binary, or if you're poor or low income, how those factors also relate to those, those experiences and those interactions. So that's really what got me um, in, interested and involved in this area of the work. Prior to coming back to Lambda Legal as a senior attorney, I worked at Legal Services NYC doing um, direct civil legal services. So this includes issues like going to family court for custody or orders of protection, um, dealing with um, divorces. I believe I did one of the first same-sex divorces in New York State, uh, which, which was interesting. But, uh, you know, with marriage comes divorce and also other legal issues. Uh, it, it, civil um, legal services also includes housing and um, access to, to public benefits and, and, and um, also deals with discrimination. So I was happy to have of the opportunity to launch a, a, a project within legal services that was specific to LGBTQ people and people living with HIV, because those issues are all connected to things such as how does poverty impact our community? When we're talking about poverty and we're talking about our interactions with these different systems, we're also talking about the criminal justice system. So for a number of my clients who might have come in for an issue related to getting food stamps, they might have a story where they were stopped by a police officer because of how they looked or what they were wearing. Or in a, a case that I um, um, handled, it was on behalf of a young transgender woman who went to the welfare center to apply for food stamps and she went in there with her name change order to get them to update her file. And then they accused her of causing a scene or, or causing some type of disruptance where they called the security on her and they forcibly removed her. And that just started an entire years long process of dealing with all of these multiple things just because she, she has a right to access these benefits and she was asserting her right to be recognized correctly um, for who she is. I wonder if you could talk about the big picture a little bit more. We're going to be talking about discriminatory policing, biased court actors from judges to jurors, unfair treatment in the system, overrepresentation in jails and prisons. How do you start off a conversation about this topic and the ways that LGBT people um, experience injustice in the system like other people and the unique ways that they experience injustice? I think it's important to start off with looking at the numbers. And even with that, there's an asterisk because unfortunately, people haven't really looked into our community in terms of how these issues impact them with as much interest as I think it deserves. Um, there's also a big piece of our history and, and I'm talking about LGBTQ history and the history of people living with HIV that has been erased and lost over the years. So what do we know? Well, thanks to the Williams Institute and um, some of their recent reporting, I think we, we have a better sense of LGBTQ people who are in these different systems. Um, the first report I wanna mention is a 2017 study called 
the incarceration rates and traits of sexual minorities in the United States. And in this study, they found that 238,000 sexual minorities are incarcerated in the United States. And I believe they defined sexual minority, it was based on how someone self-identifies and that the data only um, included lesbian, gay, bisexuals, um, and not um, trans-identified people. Um, but of course, there's the crossover where you might be a trans person who identifies as LGB. And some of their findings were that the rate of incarceration of LGB people is approximately three times higher than the already high general U United States incarceration rate. They found that incarcerated sexual minorities are more likely to experience mistreatment, harsh punishment, and sexual victimization than straight inmates, and that sexual minority men and women were significantly more likely to have spent time in disciplinary segregation or solitary confinement. So if you're doing your issue spotting already, you're seeing how the experiences that LGB people face while incarcerated just raises a number of issues in terms of the state's duty to protect them. Um, when we're talking about um, the use of disciplinary segregation or solitary confinement, which is not and should not be an alternative to the state actually doing things to protect the safety of someone. And then we are also talking about the harsh punishment and sexual victimization. And um, I would add that that could be either from other incarcerated people or by the guards themselves, because we know that happens too. And one other uh, point I wanna put out there is that after the prior administration um, made changes to the Federal um, Bureau of Prisons Transgender Offender Manual, Lambda Legal and the Southern Poverty Law Center, we sued under the Freedom of Information Act to get records on what happened and what was the basis for this, this change. And one bit of information I thought that was fascinating because I had never seen it before, was that we know that as of April 2018, there were almost 600 transgender people in BOP custody. And of those almost 600, almost 75% were transgender women and 25% were transgender men. And I, I am just like, that's such a big number. And it's just fascinating to, to think about that these are our community members uh, who are in federal custody. Those are striking numbers, and I hadn't heard any uh, much of this reporting uh, before, and so I'm glad you're highlighting it. I think you uh, maybe we should start with talking about uh, the piece around, um, we'll start with legislation, but particularly the piece around targeting and police policing and harassing. So uh, here in New York, um, we had a recent legislative victory uh, only a few weeks ago where we repealed the portion of New York penal law uh, relating to loitering for the purpose of engaging in prostitution known as the walking while trans ban, which has been misused by law enforcement to arrest and harass trans New Yorkers, women of color, LGBTQ youth. Can you talk about this law and why its repeal is really important and how long it took to get here? 
the loitering for the purpose of prostitution law, um, which we refer to as the walking while trans law was passed in the 1970s, really as a way of using police to quote unquote, clean up areas or to get rid of people from certain areas in the city. Um, and, and it was part of that entire effort. Again, we see who was most impacted, LGBTQ people, um, gender non-conforming people, or people who looked a certain way or were wearing certain clothes that the police saw as dangerous or um, that they didn't belong in these areas. So with, with that purpose behind this law, um, it had the great potential for abuse, which over the decades, it was used by police officers to target and profile certain community members of including um, um, transgender women of color and also uh, just women in general. Um, so this, this law really allowed unconstitutional practices that were based on sex discrimination. That if, if a police officer thought you um, looked a certain way or that you didn't fit their understanding of what a proper person should look like, they could stop you. And it was really a stop and frisk for the LGBTQ community that once the police stopped you, that they would then search you. And this could lead to um, your arrest. It can be led to additional charges. And for our community members, it also meant that that moment of interaction with the police officer could be very dangerous. And we heard stories and testimony was offered at um, at the New York City City Council meetings and also in Albany from survivors of this practice who told hor horrific stories of how police officers abused their power and sexually assaulted people um, who, were, who were stopped under this law. What happened over these past few years is that transgender people and transgender women of color really took the lead in building this coalition um, that had been, you know, again, scattered throughout the years. And, um, you know, there, as I mentioned, there had been efforts to repeal the law, but this was really something that was being driven by those most impacted um, by the enforcement of this law, um, transgender women of color. And they also just told stories about how this law had affected them and it put a human face to why this practice was so um, harmful. And with that, it was building a strong coalition, educating legislators. You know, these, uh, these people, they, they, they took buses to Albany and were in, in, um, in the halls you know, going to all of the different assembly members and state senators' offices and really doing that um, education effort, which I think is part of the, the big reason why this was so successful. Finally, in, in this past session, um, there, there was already a majority support in, for the repeal, uh, but it had not been called to a vote. And then there was pressure to have it called for a vote. And finally that happened 
And a surprise to many of us is that the governor signed the bill that day, that evening, <laughs> which was very exciting to see happen uh, because it really just um, put an end to this harmful practice. So another legislative topic that I'd love to talk to you about are bans on so-called gay and trans panic defenses, which have been used by defendants in criminal cases where gay or trans people are assaulted. Uh, defendants who use the so-called gay panic defense essentially argue that discovering that uh, someone's sexual orientation or their gender identity uh, made them so upset or excited that they had a violent panicked reaction and couldn't help but assault the person uh, and in some instances uh, kill them. So I'm wondering, uh, can you talk about why we needed to eliminate these defenses uh, from from uh, from use and why New York is kind of one of the states that's been leading the way in this. Great, and that's exactly right, Eric. The LGBTQ plus panic defense strategy is really a strategy that asks the jury to find that a victim's sexual orientation or their gender identity or expression is really to blame for the defendant's violent reaction which as you said, could include um, um, killing someone, um, seriously injuring them or maiming them. Um, and I would encourage folks to check out the National LGBT Bars website and also the American Bar Association um, for information and updates on the legislative efforts to ban these panic defenses. And the ABA also has model legislation on this. Um, so is New York leading the way? Maybe, kind of. Uh, <laughs> uh, we recently, uh, I believe it was last year, uh, maybe 2019 um, or 2020, uh, that New York did pass a, a ban on, on the use of this defense, um, joining, I believe at the time it was 10 other states. And um, we're, we're now seeing a, a number of states um, introducing these bills. And as of last week, Virginia passed uh, a bill in, in, in their state legislators. And I'm not sure if the, the governor has signed it yet, but um, Virginia is the latest to pass um, a bill. But the underlying issue is that LGBTQ people who are in courts as either a, a party to litigation or in, in situations like this where they are the victims of a crime, we should have our fair day in court that um, bias and prejudices against LGBTQ people should not be part of um, what happens in court. And it's really up to um, attorneys and um, judges to make sure that that um, discrimination is rooted out of the, the justice system. Now, let's take a short break, and when we come back, we'll talk a little bit about some of the litigation that's going on in this space. You know, we've covered a lot, um, discussed a lot about the Edmo case several times on this podcast. I'm wondering if you can put that huge ruling in context for us by providing some information about the realities of trans inmates, uh, in in accessing medical care, how important this ruling was, and what it means going forward. 
And uh, please feel free to broaden uh, the issue and discuss other areas where this litigation is helping to secure safety and basic health for trans inmates. Thanks for setting it up that way, Eric, because I do believe that the Edmo case is one of the most important Eighth Amendment cases, uh, a recent Eighth Amendment case that is not only important for treatment related to gender dysphoria, but really reasserts or reaffirms what the Eighth Amendment guarantees are. And um, the Eighth Amendment prohibits cruel and uh, unusual punishment. And it has been used in these healthcare cases and also in cases involving the safety of LGBTQ people. When we talk about this area of law and, and more broadly talking about LGBTQ law is that our understanding of what the Eighth Amendment does comes from a case brought by Dee Farmer, a black transgender woman who was in federal custody for 25 years, who brought her case pro se um, and it went up to the Supreme Court where they established what the standard is for these Eighth Amendment claims, which is deliberate indifference. So Dee's case is so important, not only for prisoners' rights, but really for LGBTQ rights. So <laughs> my other blog will be, if, if you are uh, a law professor, uh, you know, include Dee's case and, and her story in, um, in, in your class, in your lectures. And if you're a student and you're in constitutional um, law class, Ask them about, well, what about the Eighth Amendment? And, you know, for LGBTQ people, unfortunately, because of the need to use it, it really is something that I think we, we have some ownership of. This is, this is our amendment also. Um, so with that being said, and as you mentioned, the Edmo case um, is a recent victory that also went up to the Supreme Court where it was, um, they, they did not take it up. And the, um, there were dissents um, and, and what the dissent tried to do was to wipe out the win at the Ninth Circuit, which fortunately that did not happen. So the Ninth Circuit decision is still good law, really good law. And I'll, I'll try to explain how this case fits into a series of cases that we have seen over the past few years and how different circuit courts and, and also district courts have looked at the Eighth Amendment in terms of access to medical care. And I'll start with, I'll start with a really bad decision. And I, I call it a bad decision, not only because of the, the outcome of it, but in my opinion, it's also a bad decision because of how sloppy it was hand, handled and what the court did, which was really some type of acrobats to get to a decision that it wanted to have happen, and also to cause the most damage as it um, put out this decision. It's the Gibson case out of the Fifth Circuit. Um, and for folks who are, are not familiar with this case, is Gibson v. Collier. Um, it comes out of Texas. Uh, again, a, another pro se case. Um, although I believe uh, Ms. Gibson was represented uh, by counsel at the Fifth Circuit, challenging the state of Texas's 
policy that um, prohibited someone from even going out to get an assessment of whether gender confirmation surgery was medically necessary. So as I mentioned earlier, you know, uh, D. Farmer's case laid out the deliberate indifference standard. Um, but for medical cases, um, the other elements that you have to have is that you must have a serious medical condition, which almost every court has held that um, gender dysphoria is a, a serious medical condition. And then you look at what did the facility, what we see happen in these cases is that it's, you know, someone has a diagnosis of gender dysphoria and there is a recommended course of treatment um, by it, that was established by the WPATH um, and it's called the standards of care. Um, but these are not binding, but there is medical consensus on that these standards of care are the accepted standard that should really be setting the floor of what a facility must do. And that if they do more, good because they should be looking at what are the specific needs of this individual by doing an individualized assessment, but they should not be going so far out from what the standards of care put out that it becomes a problem because they're refusing to, to follow it. So that's one way an advocate can use these standards of care. What we're seeing is that um, states who, who are the defendants in these cases have been arguing that the WPATH standards of care should not be followed and that because they are just um, guidelines that, that they should not be followed and that there, isn't, there really isn't medical consensus around what the treatment requires. And that's just not true and it's disingenuous. And unfortunately in the Gibson decision, we saw the Fifth Circuit um, adopt that. And how they got to it though was interesting because they looked to a first, circuit case, the COSILA case that folks might be familiar with, and they misinterpreted what the actual outcome of COSILA was. And they said, we're going to adopt the, some of the findings from the COSILA decision, even though, you know, Ms. COSILA is not a party here. And we're not going to look at um, what happened in Ms. Gibson's case or the lack of factual findings in, in, in the Gibson case. And we're just gonna apply these here and we're gonna come to this outcome. And that outcome meant that in the states covered by the Fifth Circuit, um, Louisiana and Mississippi can now pass a policy that says we're not going to even assess whether gender confirmation surgery is medically necessary for you. And that would not violate the Eighth Amendment in the Fifth Circuit. So as I said, this was a horrible decision. And it was also an example of judges going out of their way to demean and dehumanize um, the parties in front of them. Um, because there's a now infamous footnote that um, Judge Ho included that talked about why he was not going to refer to uh, Ms. Gibson using her um, correct pronouns. Um, and at least for that part, that has I haven't seen that being picked up um, in other cases. But the overall the overall outcome has unfortunately been picked up by other cases, including a, an 11th Circuit case that I know has been um, included in law notes. And it's the Cohen v. Jones case um, out of Florida. And Cohen was interesting because it dealt with one part of 
treatment for gender dysphoria, which is the social transition, which is medically necessary treatment. Again, looking at the standards of care and just uh, what doctor, what medical associations, what mental health associations have said are part of all of the treatment for gender dysphoria, uh, which includes access to hormone therapy, social transition, and in some cases, um, gender confirmation um, surgeries. And, you know, there's different surgeries that may be required for someone. And what happened in Cohen is they did look to the Gibson case and um, said, you know, this sounds right to us. And we're also going to take on that there's not um, medical consensus, again, calling into question it. And why this is an, an important advocacy point is under the deliberate and different standard, you know, you have to show that they knew that by that their actions or inactions could um, cause harm or make the harm worse. But if they're able to show that they were doing something, um, then they sometimes win because they're able to show that they're doing something. But then, then the plaintiff will have to show that what they were doing was inadequate or constitutionally inadequate. So a, a classic example of that is that um, someone is taken into custody and so you have an incarcerated transgender person who has gender dysphoria and they get the diagnosis. Sometimes they get it the, when they are incarcerated. They might not have had the diagnosis before um, being in custody. And then once you have your diagnosis, like, well, what's my treatment plan? And they are required to provide medical care to someone, which includes a treatment plan. And in it, you know, it's like, well, let's start you off with some therapy. You know, we'll send you to um, our therapist and, you know, then we'll make decisions then. So you're in therapy and it's like, well, you know, what's recommended is that I have access to hormone therapy, which is, um, you know, also part of my treatment. Some states stop at the part of let's do some talk therapy and then um, refuse to permit access to hormone therapy. And these are called um, um, a freeze frame policy, which, which is like whatever your conditions were when you came in, that we're gonna stop any treatment until you get out, which just doesn't work for <laughs> any type of medical condition because you know what happens over time if you don't treat a medical condition, it gets worse. So in a case that Lambda Legal brought um, on behalf of Jessica Hicklin out against the Missouri Department of Corrections, Missouri did have such a policy and Ms. Hicklin was in their custody um, since the age of 16. So prior to her diagnosis of gender dysphoria um, and they refused to allow her to start treatment um, uh, once she had the diagnosis. So only a handful of states still have these written policies but unfortunately, we hear from so many people across the country that in practice, it's not um, so easy to, to sometimes to get the um, actual care that we need. So the state of Florida had a freeze frame policy also that was part of the Cohen case. And that part, um, they resolved by changing the policy. So it was a question of on appeal, whether that part is moot or not. And then it went into the issues around social transition. Um, and social, what happens with in, in this area is that there is usually a policy 
And it's usually because the majority of transgender women are housed in men's facilities that they are forced to follow whatever the policy is about grooming standards for men in men's facilities. And that includes, you know, cutting um, their hair a certain way or um, um, the clothing that they wear. And so what happened in Cohane was a, a two to one decision that did go up for um, an, a petition for en banc rehearing. And then when they took the vote, um, an interesting thing happened between those who were dissenting <laughs> from rehearing this and those who wanted to rehear it. And we just really saw this argument between the, the circuit uh, judges about what is the correct standard and really what happened. And it, it felt like they were calling each other out about what really happened. Were you just applying the law as we were supposed to, or were there other things happening? So I think these series of cases, they're interesting, not only because of the um, ultimate outcomes of them, and, um, and of course, also including the Edmo decision and that, <laughs> all, all of the procedural history with that, but also the inner workings of the what was happening at the courts and within the panels as they were making these decisions. And to me, as someone who, you know, my part of my job is to monitor and, and really dive into these cases and um, Linda Legal, we did uh, co-author amicus briefs in the Edmo case and also the, the Cohen case, um, is that something's going on here. And it worries me that judges are going out of their way to treat gender dysphoria and these cases brought by transgender people different than other medical conditions. And that that's, should be of great concern because it, it just shows, to me, it shows the inherent bias <laughs> when a transgender person is coming into court and how they're treated and how whether their claims are taken seriously or not, or will judges go out of their way to treat it differently? And again, just going back to what did D. Farmer's case actually mean? Um, that was decided decades ago. And what is its legacy? We still see that it's being called into question by, by judges. Richard, that's a fascinating history in of itself and a look at the as you mentioned, bias in the legal system and what's going on with judges, particularly um, with studies that we've seen about more and more partisanship in federal courts among panels of circuit judges. Um, and I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about one other piece of litigation that I'm curious, and that's um, Lambda Legal's work on rooting out bias and discrimination within the legal system specifically. Um, to make sure that people, whether it's the right not to be removed from a jury simply for being LGBT, to eliciting and striking potential jurors who harbor anti-LGBT bias or anti-against um, LGBT uh, defendants or plaintiffs. Can you uh, talk a little bit about your work on that front? Uh, sure. And thank you, Eric. And I know this is uh, an area that's also dear to your heart as our former Lambda Legal's former director of our Fair Courts Project. And you know, one thing I miss about being your Lambda Legal colleague is being able to go to your office and say, hey, did you see what happened on this jury selection case? And it, you know, it's it's really the crossover between 
my work um, dealing with criminal justice issues and the, the Fair Courts Project. Yeah. And I think the underlying thing is just like, when you go to court, we have been taught in our social studies and our civics classes about you know, the judiciary is so impartial and that you're going to get your fair day in court. And for some people who have been wronged, sometimes when, when I when I meet with um, potential clients and we talk about like, well, what are you asking for here? They say, I just want my day in court. I want, I want the judge to know, you know, this is what happened. But we also know that judges have their own biases and um, you know, it's, you don't always get your fair day, fair day in court. <laughs> you might not always be in front of an impartial jury, uh, but our, the, the drafters of the constitution thought these things were so important that it's included in, um, you know, the right to a, a jury trial. It's included in two of our amendments, you know, that um, these things are really important. So, I wanted to talk about a case that it, it's it's out of Michigan, and it is at the Michigan Court of Appeals. That <laughs> I, I don't think it's making any uh, front page newspapers, but it's such an interesting topic to, and the the story is fascinating to me, um, and I think it will be to 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 others too. It's called the People of Michigan um, versus Jeffrey Martin Six. This was a criminal case um, that is still ongoing. And in it, Mr. Mr. Six was, um, was convicted for a crime. And on appeal, he raised the issue of a violation of his constitutional right to a fair and impartial jury because the trial court judge conducted voir dire um, jury selection and refused to allow any questions about anti-LGBT bias during this, the questioning of, of potential jurors. And this happened despite the defense counsel's request um, to do so. And also after knowing that the defense counsel said, hey, a big part of, our, of, of Mr. Six's defense theory is that it was actually his former partner, same-sex partner who committed the crime. And so, with that information, the judge said, you know what, I'm conducting voir dire and um, I'm not going to ask that question. So I went up to the Michigan Court of Appeals and under Michigan State law, there is a great um, uh, Michigan Supreme Court case that talks about, yes, it's your courtroom and the judge has control over their courtroom. Uh, but when there are issues about potential bias or discrimination, you know, you you have to ask these questions. Um, Lambda Legal's um, brief talked about, and we did it with the ACLU of Michigan. We talked about the growing body of, of cases in this area about voir dire and juror bias and the right to serve as a juror, um, including an 11th Circuit case called Berthium v. Smith, um, and a, a, another case out of, of out of the state courts in California, uh, people v. Brady D. Douglas. And our brief argued that the court's denial of voir dire on anti-LGBT bias unconstitutionally deprived Mr. Six of the right to a fair and impartial jury, and that trial courts must conduct voir dire into anti-LGBT biases um, 
in a manner that per permits informed exercises of both the preemptory challenges that both parties sides have defense in uh, the prosecution and challenges for cause um, where sexual orientation is so entwined with the issues at trial that it's definitely, it's going to be brought up and it's gonna be part of what the uh, jury is, is considering. And in our brief, we um, documented data on sexual orientation bias and prejudice among um, the public. And it was interesting to do it, you know, looking at that little time period where there was good data out there because um, it was after um, data based on um, public's perception or public attitudes related to marriage equality and ballot initiatives there that um, the state of Michigan um, at that time, they, their state anti-discrimination law did not uh, explicitly include LGBT people. So it was interesting to see that data and say, look, this was the world of the pool, where the pool of jurors were coming from, you know, and you should con consider these public attitudes. And so two out of the three judges said, hey, this raises a question, but we don't have enough information. Let's remand it back to the trial court for an explanation about why the judge did not permit voir dire. So now here we are, um, and it was remanded where the judge wasn't sure exactly what he was, what he had to do, other than explain what happened, but did end up holding like a, a hearing. And then the judge was also questioned because you know that was what the, the, the Court of Appeals had ordered that the judge explain what he did here. And so the transcript is, is fascinating. If you practice in courts, uh, you know, again, I'm gonna do another plug, you know, encourage you to check it out. And basically what it came down to was the judge said, I didn't think that the, um, and I'm not quoting, this is just, you know, this is <laughs> my interpretation of what the judge said, was that the theory that they were putting out that it was actually the partner was like so far is not relevant here. And so he, the judge didn't want to allow that to become the, the focus of the Vaudier. Um, but did say, well, if this was a case where um, it was concerning same-sex partners in an intimate partner violence situation or where the victim was LGBTQ, then they, he would probably have permitted it. So now the case is back at the Court of Appeals and we're waiting to see what they're going to do with this new information. And in our um, new brief, our second brief, um, along with the um, ACLU of Michigan again, and um, joining us on the brief this time, um, is the largest um, organization for defense attorneys in the state of Michigan um, because they, they agree with what we're raising, these issues we're raising. Um, and we also include, so we, we talked about, again, talked about bias in other court rulings about, you know, where we are in terms of the um, case law. But we also included information about how intimate partner violence actually presents in same-sex couples, which we thought was something for the court to consider. Um, since, you know, the judge did say, well, if this was a case about intimate partner violence, I would have allowed questioning. And then not seeing that connection between, well, part of the defense theory did mention 
um, potential like economic abuse and things of that nature that the court should have considered that piece also. So we're waiting for a decision or to see what the court's gonna do. But I think the cases like this that happen in state courts aren't always the ones that advocates are aware of, but when it raises these clear issues about how um, constitutional rights are being violated and just different court practices, um, because the Court of Appeals also made a note about the practice of well, where is the transcript from when you decided not to do this? That was part of why they were remanding it because they didn't, they felt they didn't have the record in writing of what happened. Uh, I, I, it's just really fascinating to me. And um, I think one of the, the underlying things from all of these cases I mentioned um, today is really what is the court practice and how are judges dealing with these issues when they have someone in front of them who is part of our community and when the legal issues are very unique to our communities. And so I, I, I'm just um, really excited to have been able to share all of these things with you all. Richard, thank you so much. This has been a truly fascinating uh, look into your work and some of the major cases and, and issues around this area of law. And it's just fascinating. And I really appreciate your conversation with me today. And if you're listening and you're a lawyer, you know where to go if you're if you have the bandwidth to take on some of these very difficult cases. Uh, I assume Richard, you can you can get and let people know <laughs> what they can do. Yes. Yes, and, and I would love to hear from folks if you have questions about the, these cases or just this area of law. And also, if you are interested in being part of Lambda Legal's Cooperating Attorney Network, this is a series of, uh, it's, it's, it's a network of attorneys who we are able to provide to community members who contact our legal help desk for assistance. We provide contact information as a resource. Um, in this area of law, we receive hundreds of letters each year from community members who are in prisons and jails seeking assistance. Um, we are unable to take on these uh, every case that comes to us, but we do try to provide information and resources, including if there are cooperating attorneys who are in that area, um, to the people who are contacting us for help. Great, and I'll provide a link at, at, in, within this podcast for people so that they can access information about joining the Cooperating Attorneys Network. Thank you so much, Richard, for your time today. Eric, thank you so much, and congratulations on another year of the amazing work that the Bar Association is doing. I'm so proud of the work and so proud to be part of, of that community. It's a joy. Thank you, Richard. And thank you so much for listening. This episode and future episodes of the Legal LGBT podcast can be found on iTunes and at legal.podbean.com. Visit us on iTunes and please give us five stars, leave a comment. It's the way other people find out about us and we can grow our audience and listenership. Thank you so much for your support. We'll be back very soon with another special guest. 